Hello and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues, a podcast by Kepler Trust Intelligence. Before I introduce this week's guest, a quick reminder that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It is strongly recommended that independent financial advice should be taken before entering into any financial transaction. And with that, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues from Kepler Trust Intelligence. This week, I'm joined by Dave Baxter, who is uh, probably familiar, actually, to most people listening. He's a fu- the funds editor uh, at Investors Chronicle. Uh, so, Dave, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, today, we'll be talking probably about a few things, but I think to start with, we'll talk a bit about a piece you wrote, I think, last month or a couple of months ago uh and that was looking really i suppose at whether or not there's room or a bounce back whatever you want to call it for i guess like one-stop shop style investment trusts generalists that maybe had fallen out of favor a bit over the past decade and also you touched on um more specialist trusts so something like taylor maritime or something like that and whether those will will uh, stay popular. So could you maybe talk just briefly, I guess, summarize what, what the argument you were making there was, if, you, if that's possible? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, it's, I suppose it's kind of interesting because investment trusts in some ways now are, are used to capture some of those interesting new trends. So you mentioned, I guess, you know, quite niche things like the shipping leasing or you, you have things like Seraphim Space, you know, quite future-focused ideas and Scottish mortgage, I guess. But you do still have those kind of um, stalwarts of the sector. So names like F&C or Alliance Trust, which, as you said, and as we discussed in the piece, they're, they're kind of viewed as, in theory, they should act as a one-stop shop. So you can either stick all your money in them and you have kind of like a broad exposure to things like global equities, or you can at least use it as like most of your what you're invested in and then stick some specialist um, exposure on the side. But the issue, as you mentioned, is that they've kind of, um, if, if we're talking, I guess, maybe a couple of years ago, then they spent kind of various years languishing against something like a, a global equity tracker. So you'd kind of ask, are they still relevant? You know, what's the point of kind of using them now? Um, but now, you know, if we, I looked at the data this morning, and if, if you look at kind of performance to, say, middle of November over last year, they're kind of they're still not always doing fantastically obviously it's been a very difficult year but they're just holding up better against the msei world index and the, the point i'm kind of exploring is whether they're more relevant now and also whether you can maybe expect them to kind of be worth investing in as opposed to a tracker you know are they going to kind of uh, either outperform over time now um, or equally are they just going to give you a bit of a kind of smoother and better balanced ride and I guess we can yeah sort of discuss why why that might be yeah so I mean for I think it's interesting you, you bring this up just because recently I, I wrote something which uh, I'm sure everyone listening has, has read as well <laughs> uh, but uh, but that was that was more talking about how if you look at the past 10 and arguably even longer than that like past three decades you've just had this big um debt fueled i don't know if bubble is the right word but 
Mm. Basically, like low interest rates, lots of easy access to or cheap cheap credit, basically, and that's kind of created an environment where one you have you know, rising tides lifting all all ships, kind of thing, um, and then also just created you know massive companies trading at just massive um, valuation because if interest rates are really low, then you can discount things in that way. Um, and that just seems to be coming to an end. And one you know, result of that may be that beyond a lot, well, part, partly because of the, the more difficult economic environment where basically you can't just, you actually have to make money now. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and you, yeah, and you, you can't just rely on continual funding rounds and cheap access to mm. credit um that so you that's one facet where there's more winners and losers and also you just don't have that rising ship you know rising tide lifts all ships type environment where that so if you if you think about someone investing in a tracker that can end up working quite well because it's just okay everything's doing well everything's going to go up um but maybe there's more room for finding winners and losers and as a result active managers moving forwards i know i don't know if that was that wasn't the argument you were going to make but it's sort of hmm. perhaps related i think i think that's definitely part of it i think it's kind of um there's a couple of elements i mean one is uh one is about style so you know you mentioned that kind of low rates and that's been very good for as, as we know for kind of growth investments and um you know kind of companies where you think there's great kind of future performance and therefore you're like paying up for that and it goes up and up and up whereas i suppose now you're seeing um you've finally seen and this is that perpetual debate isn't it but you finally seen kind of more cyclical assets do do at least better relative to growth and you know people are now worrying about things like discount rates on you know like the big tech stocks um and i think that's that's probably one of the main things to to consider if if say you were kind of weighing up a, a MSCI world tracker versus these kind of funds because one reason they've lagged in the past is is because you still have that issue of MSCI, MSCI world index um is still so heavily weighted to not just the US but to those big US tech names you know the fangs microsoft and so on and at a time when they were just kind of you know there've been many times in recent years where Stock markets are doing well, but people have pointed out that, say, much of the performance in the S&P 500 has been driven by just five companies or so. So, you know, if you're if you're an active fund like Alliance Trust, you're trying to do something different. You're trying to diversify across different styles. And at Alliance Trust, for example, they try not to become overly weighted to growth or, or value funds within their portfolio. They, they back managers of, of different stripes. So... Yeah. Um, yeah. At a time when everything's driven by the fang stocks, then those funds are going to look quite kind of underwhelming. But then, you know, if you do get more dispersion and if the market becomes more balanced, and as you say, if you do get that kind of um, dynamic of stock picking starting to make more of a difference, then in theory, you know, you should should have a bit of, yeah. a bit of time with these funds. Um, but again, that is that's such a difficult debate, isn't it? Because you, you can think even before the sell-off and even before interest rates were rising, you know, we could have had this the conversation any time in the last five years, maybe most of the last 10 years, about whether those 
US stocks are overvalued, you know, whether the fundamentals are there and all, all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, no, I think I think that's a good point, which is a lot of the time when people say, oh, if you had just invested in whatever, if it's like an S&P or MSCI tracker, and they'll look back at the past decade and go, oh, it was, it was so obvious. But even, mm. yeah, three, four or five years ago, there was a very good argument to be made that, and possibly that has now been proven correct, that lots of those companies were, as in the fan companies, were quite overvalued. Um, and so it's sort of like a hindsight. I think a lot of the time you have a hindsight bias thing where it's easy to go, oh, yeah, well, if I'd just done that, it would have been really, really simple. But actually, in the moment, it's not really that obvious. Um, and so that, which I think in a way plays into the strength of these funds, right? Which is if you're, if you were someone even three, four years ago who was saying, actually, I don't really want it to be, have massive exposure to US growth. In, you know, in, in hindsight, maybe you could say oh, that wasn't the right call to make, but that was still something, something that people were saying and that was still a valid call mm. to make. So, so yeah, I just think, I think it's, it's often not as straightforward as it seems with looking through the rearview mirror type of thing. Yeah, yeah. well, it's like, you know, you mentioned, you know, all these kind of trades unwinding because of rising rates and, you know, I was speaking to someone recently about the huge, slightly different, you know, slightly slight divergence, but it's talking to someone about the massive sell-off you've seen in bonds. And, you know, they made the point that, of course, really people should have expected that if you're, if you've got bonds on kind of negative yields, then there's not really, there's, there's quite a long way that prices can fall if things go wrong, but then it's kind of, maybe it speaks to the psychological challenges of investing, because if you're, if you've been just in a in a tracker or something and you know you've made huge returns and all these funds that are doing things differently and trying to take a more balanced approach look quite weak in comparison then it's very it's very easy i think to kind of buy into that narrative and um equally i suppose there's been been concerns raised that that you know get plenty of kind of fund managers and investment professionals who um, I suppose until recently had never known in their careers a period when you didn't have kind of ridiculously low interest rates and it, it becomes yeah. it's almost a kind of psychological blind spot because you can't you can't really consider things being different so I mean to, maybe to go back to a piece of it I mean do you think we are we've reached the end of this fang growth dominance and that there will be a sea change or do you think it's more of a temporary phenomenon and that will just revert back to buying US tech once again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really hard to call, isn't it? Because I, I think what's been interesting this year is if you speak to a lot of investors, they're still, you know, normally when you've seen markets fall and things like the FANG stocks fall, then people go into the mode of kind of buying the dip. Um, but people aren't necessarily doing that because there's still, it still feels like even now there's, uncertainty about the extent to which rate rises will um, crank up and the extent to which that will kind of hit those business models and also the extent to which you know we've potentially kind of overvalued those stocks in the past and what what is kind of like a a fair value for them um so but then equally, on the other hand, you know, tech is still ubiquitous in our lives. I and mean, it's not like 
it's not like our lives are going to become less digitalized because you've had interest rates rising. So yeah. I think there is a strong argument. You could say they would, they would come back, but um, yeah, I yeah. don't know. I mean, if the macro environment is particularly different, then maybe it is kind of, maybe we are going to see less of that kind of imbalanced, um, you know, market makeup. I've basically not given you an answer because it's kind of yeah. <laughs> That's okay. It's, it's a yeah wise move to not, not try and uh, predict the future. <laughs> I think. Um, I mean, and and so the, yeah, to go back maybe to the other point that you make in the, in the article, which or or the other thing you discuss is really specialist funds. So again, mm. that could be something like shipping or like forestry. I mean, there's all it feels like there's almost any kind of niche yeah. area, which is I think a really interesting or, or positive feature of the space. Um, but then I think the question you really looked at was how much exposure should you should you have to those sorts of, of funds? I mean, should in, relative to the other funds we've discussed. So if you mm. think of, uh, I mean, what, what are your thoughts there? Is it is it? Are you basically saying that the more generalist, so let's say like an alliance trust or Brunner or something like that, should really be the core, and then you have are sitting around that smaller exposure to shipping or yeah forest, forestry whatever whatever tickles your fancy yeah I, I think that makes sense um having kind of a, a a lot of your portfolio in something relatively broad whether it is a whether you are a fan of something like a tracker or one of these kind of investment trusts or or a handful of kind of maybe more conventional funds focusing on things like equities or traditional assets and then um having yeah what's referred to as i guess kind of satellite holdings of smaller positions in those more esoteric funds um i mean again these things are quite individual in terms of like how much you would allocate to those funds i've I've previously spoken to people who said you know with with kind of alternative asset classes and obviously that covers a lot of areas but with with alternatives you might for example not want to put more than I don't know, 5% of your portfolio in, in one particular fund, whether that's something like infrastructure or some of those more esoteric areas that you, you mentioned. Um, but it, yeah, I, th- I think it just, it depends on your preferences. And, you know, maybe you're an investor who loves the space theme or loves the forestry theme or, or whatever it is. Um, yeah. But it is, it is worth noting that in theory, well, not just in theory, in practice, these specialist funds can be so idiosyncratic and so, and very exposed to kind of, you know, their own specific trends, which means that they can have quite big ups and downs and potentially more so than you would see in a, in a broad fund. So I, I think I mentioned in the piece, you know, you've had, you know, you, you mentioned kind of the shipping funds have done kind of relatively well this year and there have been some really niche funds um like a, a merger arbitrage trust that when i last checked had done really well in the last year or so or things yeah. like bh macro but then on the other hand you can see the idiosyncratic risks with um say there was you know civitas social housing last year that was a very popular fund um or things like tritax big box this year they're kind of focusing on very interesting themes but then they run into like their own specific issues and you see them move from being on a a big 
share price premium being very popular to suddenly absolutely falling out of beds and and making quite big paper losses over a relatively short period. So you just need to realize that you can be, you're more likely to be massively up or massively down with those kind of funds than with, you know, something broad. Um, Although volatility is everywhere, but, but that is the idea. So that's why I suppose core and satellite can be a kind of, slightly easier to live with approach um yeah a bit less stressful if you're someone who sort of checks their, their yeah. all in on shipping yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly Betting big on shipping. yeah yeah no, interesting i mean maybe to, to to close off this part of the discussion are there any in the specialist any trusts in the specialist area that you think are looking i don't know particularly interesting at the moment or in the same way that there might be something of a sea change in the broad equity space where US exposure becomes less of a less of a big deal and more room for active management. Are there any specialist trusts that you think look I don't know, particularly capable of handling like a very tough economic environment, potentially recession, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's hard to tell. There's I think there's maybe two sides of it. So one is you have those um you have very niche funds that have tended to prove pretty resilient. So I don't know, one name to kind of pluck from the air is um, that's tended to look, yeah, quite sturdy, but is very niche is, you know, something like biopharma credit, you know, they, they kind of lend to, well, they focus on kind of life sciences debt and they've, they've tended to look quite resilient and been known for their kind of quite strong, due diligence um but as as i said you know anything like this you're going to potentially get your very very sector specific risks that might kind of creep up on you and you might not be able to predict um and then i don't know the other side of the coin is what if you're kind of long-termist what still looks interesting if you know as with tech you know i was saying that's still a interesting trend Mm. could you argue that say Tritax finally looks interesting because logistics and e-commerce, it may may be kind of vulnerable for now, but in the long term, it's still a thing that isn't going away. Or equally, uh, you know, the private equity trusts are on such massive discounts at the minute and they could look vulnerable in a time when kind of debt is uh, not ridiculously cheap anymore. But if you're... If you can handle it, if you can kind of sit in there for a few years, then the kind of trends yeah. they're focusing on, like the secular growth trends, should still hold up. Yeah. I think that's something we've seen in general but across some of these more specialist trusts is that um, in the past, let's say, 12 months, quite a lot of them have just op- – the discount has opened up massively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's true of some other more – Gen- generalized not not so niche funds as well but um i think in, in a lot of cases it's not necessarily you look at them and go oh that's gonna really you know blow it out of the water i can't believe it's on such a wide discount but it's more like mm. it's the discount is so wide that it feels as though there's not that much left to to price in so it's very it's you can completely see that some trusts uh may not may not uh you know immediately bounce back and there might be in terms of the nav coming down that's always possible but because the discount is so wide, it's almost like that's priced in, and it sort of acts like a cushion on further, on further losses. 
potentially. I, yeah, I could also yeah. be completely wrong and uh, <laughs> I just get whacked even more. But but that seems to be, I've seen that across quite a few sectors and like not, not that aren't really related at all. So it's, it's, it's definitely a thing that seems to be happening. Yeah, it is. It does seem quite indiscriminate, doesn't it? The uh, huge discount widening, but then it feels like any area where you have any uncertainty, then that's getting priced into the extreme. So, you know, the, as yeah. I mentioned, some of the PE trusts are on something like 50% discounts and they've, and they've always been on, you know, for many years, been on big discounts anyway, but that is yeah. absolutely enormous. And I suppose, like you say, it's just, yeah, people, are, maybe people are pricing in the worst. I think, yeah, I think that is what they, that is definitely what they're doing. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, maybe to move on to a, a slightly different topic, we're going to talk about global, global equity income. So yeah. If we've talked about stuff that might perform well, I think the point here is more that they seem to be holding up well as opposed to you know smashing it smashing it out of the park. But uh, so, can you talk a bit about that? Why do you think that's happened? What what are some of the dynamics at play there? Yeah, it's just quite interesting. Um, so you know, we're talking global income, but income in general, both in the investment trust space and in the open ended space too. That's something that has tended to be a bit sturdier in the last year or so so those those are the kind of funds that have either somehow eked out a positive return or have had less of a bad year which is for many investors perhaps one of the, the better outcomes um i think it's it's probably a combination of two or, or i guess maybe two slightly different trends so one is some income funds have kind of captured the they, they've just got exposures to kind of sectors like energy and you know some of those few sectors that actually have kind of benefited in the inflationary environment we found ourselves in so those have done well um quite cyclical exposures but then on the other hand you've had the kind of i suppose less yield focused less high octane funds that focus on um maybe companies aren't enormously exciting but companies that kind of keep paying out a dividend maybe kind of uh, companies in older industries, um, not kind of glamorous stocks, but those are, you know, for example, things like maybe things like consumer staples or various, you know, utilities, stuff like that. But but those companies, I think perhaps have become a bit of a haven for some investors because they've, they're very well-established companies. They've held up for a very long time. Um, they're quite well kind of capitalized and therefore they look like, and, and they, they often kind of offer things that should, you know, continue to chug along, even if we do go into a recession, you know, you, you get the kind of fund managers joking about people will still brush their teeth in a recession or, or that kind of thing. Um, so you've, yeah. you've got weirdly those two different schools or cohorts of income funds are kind of doing quite well. And then if you look at the, say, if you glance at the kind of global equity income sector, um, you've, yeah, you, you've had like some quite good results. So if you look at kind of one year returns, um, Murray International, which was kind of, um, I guess it's been a bit different, a bit contrarian. It's tended to focus on um, kind of companies in areas like kind of Asia, um, and it's been less focused on, say, you know, the US. So it, it has 
had a bit of a kind of underwhelming time before the last year or so, but now it's basically, it's massively returned to form. It's kind of, it's performing really strongly. Um, anyone who's in that is like, it's quite nicely up. And then you have, you know, a few other names have, have done pretty well. So the, um, as we know, it hasn't been the best year for Bailey Gifford, but the Scottish American Trust, their global income fund, that, that has done relatively well. It's kind of flattish on the year, um, which I think is a good result. And then you have names like um, a very popular trust recently, the, the JP Morgan Global Growth and Income Trust, which has been sort of gobbling up some of its peers. Um, you know, that's a little bit down, but I think being a little bit down is kind of a relatively good result. And they and they have you know these funds all have slightly different approaches, which is is quite interesting. But um, yeah, it's just been it's probably worked out quite well. If you're say if you're kind of an investor who is um, kind of reliant on their portfolio for income, so you're kind of not working anymore, then periods like these, are, I, I imagine, must be enormously stressful because you don't really want to be like dipping into your portfolio at a time when when everything's down, because of course you then erode the value of it and that that can have massive negative implications for your future um income yeah but at least now you know these funds have held up relatively well and they've continued to kind of pay dividends so yeah so well, i mean what yeah, yeah gotten through it better than you might expect to have yeah I mean, what one of the things you you mentioned there was you said they take different approaches so can you maybe talk a bit about what those are and uh if possible have you seen any i don't know have, have you seen that any particular style in the space has has been managed to hold up better than others or anything like that yeah so i suppose um like i said kind of murray international has been a bit more contrarian and maybe kind of exposed to some of those areas that have not seen the kind of reversal of the last year or so um and and kind of, you know, they've focused on regions that aren't always that well represented within um, within a global income fund. You know, sometimes global income funds can be a bit beholden to the uh, kind of makeup of the MSCI World Index. So in, in recent years, if they've decided not to have a massive weight to the US as that index does, then they've ended up kind of underperforming, you know, slightly similar story to things like Alliance Trust as discussed yeah. before. Um, but say you look at Murray International in its equity exposure, something like a quarter of that recently was in Asia, um, around 20% was in Europe, around a quarter in North America. So, so quite different. And I suppose it also stands out because it has quite a low allocation to the UK. So it's kind of, it is... Um, something a bit different if you're someone who already loves a UK income fund for those nice yields. Um, yeah. And then, um, yeah, I, turning to the JP Morgan fund, um, that's quite an interesting one because they are, um, they're quite flexible in terms of their style approach. So in not too long ago, they were kind of um, holding, they have a decent amount of exposure to some of the kind of US tech stocks and some of those growth names, but they've, they've been kind of shifting with the times a bit. They kind of, they lightened up on those names and moved more into kind of reopening plays um, in the earlier pandemic. And they've been, they've been kind of 
to an extent, having a foot in both camps also. So they've had exposure to some of those big tech names, but they also have more kind of cyclical holdings. Um, so that that has worked out relatively well. Um, although I suppose it's it's good to remember that, you know, if you're dependent on a team calling market shifts, then there there might be times when they get it wrong and you're you're gonna struggle. Um yeah. but just I suppose just one other thing on the approaches is and this is an interesting debate in the income space, is you know, some some funds still go for kind of what's called natural income, they just get the dividends from from their underlying companies. But the JP Morgan funds, in line with some of the other trusts run by JP Morgan, they um they basically kind of pay a set percentage, I think around four percent of NAV. Yeah over the course of a year based on like a set date, I think towards the end of the previous year. Um, and that's, you know, that's more of a kind of total return approach. So rather than chasing after yields and potentially ending up in more cyclical sectors or, you know, taking risks, they will more focus on a company that they think is good. And then they can kind of, I suppose, make, they can make generate the income via a combination of, dividends from yeah. the company and if they need they can use kind of capital pay out yeah. capital slightly and, and that comes with risks if you're if you're down so you know there are some trusts that have struggled in the last year or so and they tend to um use capital to an extent to, to pay that so that is a risk but but it works quite well for them um so far <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah. No, I think that that seems to be a increasingly popular. I mean, in theory, I think it makes sense, right? Which is if you're yeah. if you're being constrained, where you're only you're you're only investing in something because you think uh, it will give you a good divvy, versus you actually think it's a good company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe I mean maybe that that binary option uh, binary choice is not actually there. But I think speaking to managers in a, at different trusts that take this approach, it does seem to make things a little easier for them. Because they don't, they don't have to have in the back of their head always. Am I going to be able to get the income I need from this? Yeah. Um, but as you said, there are. That doesn't mean there's no risks, and they can. It can be. Those can aren't that ones. Sorry, I was, I was going to say it can definitely be an approach that works until it doesn't work. So you had. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, a few weeks ago you had Princess Private Equity. They they're one of the names that have stood out from their peers because they do pay a dividend, but they. But private equity, that's slightly difficult because you're partly reliant on realizations yeah. and they took a big hit on currency hedging and then maybe there's a risk of realizations drying up so they've had to pause their interim dividends so you know yeah. that, um, that can become a problem yeah not without risks i suppose is, yeah. the, is the message it's the yeah. message there the caveats okay yeah okay well maybe maybe to finish off this is actually something i, I was talking about with one of my colleagues earlier this week uh which is so tr- i think yeah trust that sell themselves as wealth preservation type funds. So I think Ruffa is probably the big the big uh, standout there this year. The, the question we had was basically, should you risk going with something that's more, let's say over the past decade, let's say it would have been something more growth oriented mm. and you can, you're going to have to deal with a draw, you, you will probably have to deal with a drawdown or should you just stick with something where they're very good at avoiding drawdowns? So Maybe maybe he can come up with a better answer than we had. I don't I don't know. What were your thoughts on on this this space? I think these yeah these funds serve a particular purpose. I guess don't they? Because they have 
they have some equity exposure and then they use things like bonds and gold to um to try and uh give you a smoother ride when things get rough um I th- yeah, yeah i think it depends on your how much time you have to kind of wait out market ups and downs and also yeah. how much you how much volatility you can tolerate so if you're I think things like rougher are probably especially good if you're kind of older and you want to start. You, you don't really have that time to wait out 10 years for your for your yeah. equity investments to eventually come back to where they were and you're, and you're investing along all that time and getting pound cost averaging. Um, yeah. So it's, for me, I think that would be the kind of dividing line. Like if you, if you get hugely stressed out by these falls and you can't deal with it, then maybe yeah. you do go for that more defensive approach, but you have to accept that you're kind of lim- potentially limiting your end returns over a longer time period. Um, yeah. Yeah. But they, I do, I think they serve quite good, a good purpose for, for a certain demographic. And uh, yeah, I say it's been quite interesting looking at rougher because again, that's, that's another thing that has looked quite um, unexciting, underwhelming for, for many years. And they've, for a very long time, they've been worried about inflation, about you know things finally yeah. coming crashing down, and now they're right, and it's and they look really good, and they look really kind of well placed. But you know you could have you could have read their commentaries in this subject five, six, seven years ago, <laughs> yeah. and you know if you, if you were kind of in a, in a tracker or wherever, you would have just kept making absolutely enormous returns and feeling quite clever about it. Um, yeah. What was your kind of conclusion, or did you? Did you uh, we, I think basically that Ruffer's similar strategies are impressive. I mean, if you look at Ruffer's performance over the past two decades, you almost can't pick out when there's been a major drawdown in the market, which I think is wow. I mean, you you, you probably could a tiny bit, but there's there's they really have done. It's like you know, it does what it says on the tin kind of fund. So I think that if if in that sense you have to respect them. And I think also if you you know Nassim Taleb, the black swan guy, always said the mm. all all that matters in investing is the drawdown. And I think if you see things that way, um then these funds will will, will appeal to you. But I th- I that was the point you made was also one that I brought up, right? So I'm in my late twenties, I can probably afford to take on a bit of risk. In contrast, if I was, you know, my dad is almost retired and is and is and is. Uh, I won't say how old he is, but probably one way to. But uh, but I think he would probably not. He would. There's no way he would want to take on the same level of, of, of risk as me, and so he would probably find that more appealing. But that's not to say that I. I don't find it appealing if that makes sense. I think that it is really impressive what they've done. And I think even if they were early um, or in, in talking about some of the things that are now playing out, the fact that they were talking about them, um, mm. one gives you some confidence that they, uh, you know, they, they are not, they know what they're talking about. Um, and also it's, it's one thing to predict something. It's another thing to actually be able to take advantage of it. But at least if you were expecting it and, had managed to roughly figure out what dynamics were going to come into play to cause the situation, say that we're, we find ourselves in today. Yeah. I think that's probably quite reassuring as well because you can go, okay, if this guy, if these these managers actually had some idea this was coming. Yes, that's not a guarantee that they're going to 
absolutely blow it out of the water in the years ahead, but at least they, they're sort of prepared to deal with it. So I think that is another, especially today, that's probably something else that people are finding appealing. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is very kind of hindsight-led question, I guess, but did you look at, if you looked at those 20 years, how, what was the gap between rougher and, say, if you had been in, you know, some sort of all equity vehicle? I, I honestly, off the top of my head, I can't remember. I'm, I'm looking at, I've pulled up the, the price now. So it's not, I wouldn't say it's entirely accurate to say that they saw no, you know, no dips, but definitely yeah, relative yeah. for sure. And like, if you look at, say, the past 12 months, right? Or if you, and if you looked at actually also um, when you had that big crash um, at the start, of, the start of the pandemic and also in, uh, financial crisis late 2000s again it's like you can sort of see it but it's nowhere near as as um impactful as 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 it, is, as it would have been for like some you know growth equity or whatever general equities fund yeah so it's a tough one is it? it's an interesting you know maybe that could be you could you could write your next piece about that yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah good idea yeah i mean okay. i guess one interesting note is just that, yeah, there is that theory, isn't there, that you, the amount, the amount of drawdown you limit when things fall has a massive impact on your returns. So it'd be interesting to see, yeah, how over the long run they actually do kind of look versus something that's a bit more, bit more risk on. Yeah, as I said, I, I, off the top of my head, I wouldn't wouldn't be able to wouldn't be able to give you the figures, but um, mm. yeah, something something worth looking at. Yeah, cool. Well, I think we've we've been going actually for quite a while now, so that's probably a good point uh, for, for for us to stop. So, Dave, thanks very much uh, for for taking the time to speak to me, and hopefully we can have you back again at some point in the future. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Trust Issues by Kepler Trust Intelligence. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Remember to visit our website at trustintelligence.co.uk to keep up with all the latest research on investment trusts.